0: Hello, this is Alex Casaris from Oracle, Arizona, and you are listening to The Candid Frame.
1: For the longest time, the story of how a photographer got their big break sounded pretty familiar. You would imagine a young photographer with a leather-bound portfolio visiting New York City. There, they would visit editors and art directors, trying to make an impression that would hopefully lead to that career-launching opportunity. Though that still may be part of some stories, the age of Instagram, websites, and email have resulted in different narratives. Taiwanese-born photographer Jessica Chow was aspiring to do editorial and commercial work, but was keeping ends meet by shooting weddings. But... Things began to change when one day she responded to an email.
0: I got this email from the editors looking, they needed a photographer, but, you know, do you have a little bit more work? So I kind of had like um, some, like where I did the second photography or like little bits of photo from like my wedding, the wedding work. And kind of used that to kind of like showcase just a little bit of extra stuff, just to like show that documentary style. And then I got the job. Um, They're like, hey, this is great. Like, I think they want to go with you, by the way, this is for L'Oreal Paris shooting on commercial photo shoots. So that was like my first job. So my first day of work was um, photographing behind the scenes um, with Gwen Stefani for like an entire week. where she was like this sort of the secret new talent that they're going to showcase.
1: Over the years, she has created a body of work that revolves around portraiture and documentary style photography, all produced with a keen eye. For color and gesture but the learning curve for being a professional photographer had less to do with anything related to the camera and more about how to interact with
0: people it's, it's very psychological Imagine a lot of like different influences coming around you have the expectations to want like you have the personal pressure to want to please the client you have like what's going on in front of you which is their action with the talent and then you have just like a lot of the you have PR people around you kind of like with their agenda of what to do. So I think one of the, the main lessons that I had to come away with with that was to try to control the environment. What, what was going to happen to make it so that like the you learn to have to manage all the ingredients to make a successful shoot.
1: We'll talk to Jessica about how her return to Taiwan is an adult. Impacted her personally and creatively, and why she turned her camera on her home, the San Gabriel Valley, for her personal project, Suburban Chinatown. This is Ebony and X, and welcome back to the Candid Frame. <laughs> well, I want well, talk a, a lot about your, your work, but one, one of the things I want to talk to you about to start with is about your grandmother. Okay. And I've she was a, a journalist back in China, or is it or yes. Taiwan? During what period was this? Was this the 70s?
0: No, no, no. This is before? much long long ago. Um, so this was before the communist sort of takeover of the government.
1: Okay.
2: So
0: my, my grandmother, she's from like the northeast region of like kind of northeast of Beijing. Like, And from what I can, just like the little bits of stuff that I know about it, it's that there's basically just like women were not getting it. Girls were not getting an education back then. Right. And so she was just like one of the few like girls who were getting, who got an education because the family had a little bit of money before like, like an uncle, I think a relative had gambled the money away. But up until that point, it was, it was just something that I think my, my grandmother's mom had like just known how useful it was to be able to read contracts or do things and was just insisting that my um, grandmother would have an education along with her brother. So, like, they would actually just, like, walk miles and go to school and stuff. And so, she, I think, got, like, somehow um, got herself into, like, getting, like, a teacher's degree. You know, before she was married, she was, there was, like, a little paper, like, local newspaper. And she would just, she got hired to write a bunch of, like, little newsletter reports. And that she was just, like one of the few women who had done that.
1: She's was yeah. a spitfire.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think she's like. Oh, it was like a very like modern woman back in her time.
1: Yeah, because it's amazing. <laughs> even during that time, even if she wasn't working like for a big newspaper, just the idea that a woman of that of that period, yeah, would be going out talking to people, and being a writer. Yeah, exactly. I think was really sort of extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I think it was just highly uncommon. I think my grandmother was really very, like, like she would always tell me about this little story, how, like, somebody was, like, saw her in the street. I think she had worn, like, you know, little heels and had, like, a little cheap dress like, the,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and stuff, and somebody, and it was probably, like, short sleeve and stuff, and I think somebody had, like, run up to her and passed a note to her saying that, like, you were a modern beauty, and so uh. she was, like, very <laughs> proud of that. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Did you get to know much about her? Did you get these, like, stories and bits and pieces?
0: Yeah, definitely got, like, little bits of these stories and bits and pieces throughout the years. But I was very, very close to my grandmother. She actually lived with us in our house for, like, all growing up. But I think just, like, a lot of the stuff about the past, you kind of hear it in passing very candidly through Mm -hmm. conversation spontaneously. And I think the idea of, like, asking somebody about their history and past and stuff, it just doesn't... It, it just doesn't sometimes really occur, I think, not especially not in our family.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's really amazing and probably really encouraging when you hear of your own family members really making huge leaps in terms of what they choose to do with their lives. Especially when you come from families that are very traditional, regardless of you know what the race or the, the culture is. And especially when you're young, all right, I can imagine that that's really sort of inspiring to think that when things were much more difficult, that this person managed to make that a part of their lives.
0: Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Like, I think that when I was growing up, like, this, just anything that I did, like, if I traveled or did something, it was like, my. all well, my grandmother was sort of, like, emphasized to her friends. So we're like, oh, she's gone and traveled to, like, gone over the place. She's doing this and this. And I think it was just, like, these sort of, like, bits of encouragement, like, mm-hmm. that because of that it was just that she had gone through this and then she can recognize it in somebody else when they're going to, when they're trying to do things as well. And that getting that encouragement, it's like very, it's super teeny tiny, but it's, it makes a big difference.
1: Especially when it's your grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: So you were born in t- Taiwan and then you came here when you were less than a year old?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So my, my older sister, she was actually born here, but my mom went back to Taiwan to like have me because I think my grandmother was there at the time. And she just had some help. And then it was just like a matter of convenience to have me born in Taiwan.
1: So your parents were a part of that big migration that happened during, I guess, it was it the 70s or maybe earlier?
0: Yeah. So they kind of came over. Uh, my dad, he came over um, to um, go to graduate school. So basically, both my parents, they went to the top universities in Taiwan. And my dad, he was um, studying the sciences. And to kind of like do your postgraduate studies, like you kind of, you Tend to go to abroad. So you, he came out. I think he went to. Um, I think he came out for Stanford or or uh, Illinois, like the uh, yeah. Some one. Of, I forget which exactly which school but he came out for postgraduate studies. Okay. And he went to two different ones, which is why I don't know which one he came for first.
1: So that that, that area, it was San Gabriel in the San Gabriel Valley, became the largest community of of, of Chinese, both Chinese American and Chinese immigrants.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So did you largely grow up sort of in that sort of insular community for a, a, a good part of your childhood?
0: Yeah, basically my parents after, um, you know, my dad had done his post studies and was trying to work and do stuff. They, I guess, learned about like Monterey Park, figured out that this neighborhood existed and was like moved over in the, the 90s, in the early 90s. So, yeah, I did grow up in this very like like Asian neighborhood with all the people who look like me and spoke Mandarin.
1: I grew up in South LA, and which is largely, at the time, African-American and Latino, probably around 50-50 around that time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That was pretty much the, the world that I knew. And outside of my my relatives, like my, my aunts who lived in different parts of Los Angeles, like Hollywood and different pockets. And I think it, was, it wasn't it was until junior high school, when I was part of the speech team, mm-hmm. that I began to discover different other parts of los angeles Mm -hmm. especially the san fernando valley and the west side and things like that i was we go to those different schools and make quite an impression to me to realize that not only was los angeles that much bigger but things were very different yeah right not only in terms of you know what people look like but the facilities they had access to the resources it was really just kind of blew my mind and i was wondering during your youth do you remember a time when you did discover that that there was a world outside of you know, san gabriel monterey park
0: yes yes i mean i think this is the first thing that kind of comes to mind it, it comes from like somebody who I had kind of like as a kid she, or one of my best friends growing up she had moved in back to monterey park from san diego so it wasn't so much that I had gone out and, like, saw something, but it was, like, more like somebody came back and brought something and told me about something else outside of Monoi Park. Mm-hmm. And she had come from San Diego, and I was a largely – she kind of went to a school that was very much, a, like, a white population. And it was just, like, kind of telling me these st- – and she kind of showed – like, when – her first day of school, she showed up in, like, this, like, blue, baby blue tennis dress and, like, jellies, like, clear jelly shoes. Yeah. And it was just, like, super, just wildly different from, like, what we were wearing in our school. And it was, I think we all kind of, like, noticed her and were like, what is she doing? Who does she think she is? Like, what is all this? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was, like, very much. But then I was also just completely intrigued by her. So I passed her a note, just like, hey, do you want to be friends? Like, in our classroom. And then it was from there where I started, like, you know, learning about what was going on outside of Marnie Park, which was, seemed to me at the time, very much like, oh, this is where the world is happening, but not here. Like, th- that was sort of like that feeling that I had. It's like, it's like things, I'm living here, but then if you want to participate in the world, it's like outside. And yeah, It always felt like I was in a bubble. Yeah.
1: Did that sort of change when you went to uh, East LA City College?
0: Um. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um. I mean, I think by that point, I had already, like, like, started getting influences just outside. Like, I was, like, really, at, like, already at that point seeking other things that was not offered from my community, like, just in terms of music and then just culture, alternative culture and stuff. Yeah. And I think definitely from um, East LA College, it was sort of, like, it sort of opened up a lot of, like, a different type of philosophy for me or not so much a philosophy but just people's attitude towards things like I think I had always like had these bit of like philosophical questions that I would ask but then people would just like why are you like wondering about that it doesn't matter but when I kind of like found like in like the East LA community or when I went to East LA and was around like more Latinos and just other people who were kind of more in the arts and stuff it was just seemed like it just I suddenly found like I, I had a place to kind of grow from there.
1: I was reading that that you had an appreciation for how Chicanos looked at their history and and, mm-hmm. and their and their culture, and that made a, a big impression uh, on you. What, yeah. what was that about?
0: Yeah, I think it was just something about having, like, um, a sense of pride in, like, you know, who they were as, like, um, a culture. And also just, like, it was this sort of, like, there was a fight for it as well, a fight to kind of preserve who they saw themselves as, and to kind of have that, like, be represented and and beautiful I'm also pretty distinct. And I think that that was something that I had admired just like looking at it from the outside. And I think that was something that I was sort of like craving for in a way to find a way to be proud of like where I had come from and also just sort of like, but also just like disappointed that we just didn't seem like within, within the Asian community, we were pretty like vocal about that kind of expression. It was more of an admiration from, from that. And, and, but that kind of like gave me a place to sort of like explore this part that, that i wanted to sort of get out of myself if that
1: makes well, any sense was was it part of it the, the fact that because it was a largely sort of immigrant uh a community that they were attempting to sort of assimilate and i don't like that word assimilate but basically sort of adopt all the trappings of what it means to be an, an american so there was less of a need to feel like that sort of pride that chicanos had because the dynamic was very different. I think for, for, for Chicanos, part of the idea is that they felt like they were being denigrated for uh, uh, for an integral integral part of themselves. And so claiming that Chicanismo mm-hmm. was a way of sort of combat- combating that, where maybe for Chinese immigrants, they weren't necessarily being diminished to that degree so for them that sort of combative nature of holding on to it wasn't as, as necessary do you think that that may have sort of played a part in why one community sort of had that sort of aggressive adherence to to its history while with uh, the Chinese community it was less so
0: yeah I think so I mean I think that uh, I mean the reason why I have a difficult time just like confirming that like it definitely is there is parts of it where it's like you don't really feel i mean i think that just also having grown up in Park in the suburbs and in this type of community is that like a lot of the services and everything we're were kind of like we're able to kind of grow a local economy just based on the fact that like everybody who kind of came into the suburbs came from a very like diverse set of backgrounds like it was different economic levels different um um, educational level. So it was like already sort of like this built-in sort of diversity within in sub- the suburbs that you were able to kind of really cater a community in that way and not really and kind of sort of like in, keep it insular. So you kind of had a safe place to grow. And so, yeah, I think in that way, it's like there wasn't this feeling of like there was an outside oppression over the the thing about um, just feeling like so have not needing to sort of like fight that hard. But I also feel like the reason why I like struggle to just like wholeheartedly accept that is also because I think the way like Asians and like at least with Chinese people is going to be that the way you deal with conflict and everything. You don't talk about it out loud. Hmm. It's a not it's just not a thing that you do. You keep everything to, like if you don't lose face outside, you don't bring that type of attention to yourself. So that's definitely another reason why.
1: Oh, that's a good point yeah well you transferred to ucla and you got a degree in middle east studies yes is that right so yeah. how, how did you take that and become a photographer I, I think some people would look at that and go okay how does that <laughs> how does that fit
0: well you know what my mind is always a spaz so it's kind of hard to keep up <laughs> but no the real, i actually went to um to ucla and studied history with the intention of using that as my like backbone for journalism and photojournalism and so that was sort of like... And I knew that UCLA had a great student newspaper. So I was like, okay, I can get my experience there. But I have my transfer credits where I can go to, you know, and do this stuff and learn history. Which, but history for me as an academic, like, in terms of studies, has always been one of the easier st- topics for me, subjects for me. So... Just and I just have a natural inclination towards it. I just generally very interested in it. Normally, I'm like kind of ADD, but if you put me in a history class, I tend to listen. So, (laughs) (laughs) which is odd. But um, but the reason why I studied Middle East history was because um, 9/11 had just happened, like when I was in high school sort of like, I guess, maybe, maybe a sophomore, junior in high school, and suddenly everybody had opinions about it. And you know, when you're young, you're like, we're ready to just kind of get out in the world and just kind of learn what's going on. Yeah. And so this was sort of like the place where I was finding a way to like channel my interest.
1: And you did, a, I guess, an internship or something along those lines with, with television news?
0: Yeah, I did a, um, an internship with uh, ABC7 News as an online news producer. Yeah, but it was very short-lived like maybe a couple months. Yeah.
1: So your first photographic opportunity, uh, I thought the story of how that happened was a very interesting one. So I wanted to share that because I guess a lot of people wonder, how do you get in? Because just having the degree <laughs> alone doesn't, doesn't give you entry to any, to anything, but yours is kind of fascinating in terms of how that happened.
0: Yes. Um, so I had like graduated from UCLA and I had like a little like bit of work that I made from being at the paper, this, um, the daily brewing and then there is this light soccer. I mean, there is this um platform where it was like kind of like this forum for reporters and photojournalists to sort of share information and show their portfolio. So it was like a little bit janky. My portfolio was like super janky. It was just like this little photojournalism portfolio that I had with maybe like 10, 10 images. And um one day I got um an email from an uh, editor working at Sepa from the corporate division to do um uh, if I was available for like shoot, they needed somebody. They didn't tell me what it was about. And SIPA is? SIPA Press is, they're kind of like a a newswire, very similar to Associated Press in the U.S. And so it was like, but that was in the French counterpart, I guess, or its own agency in France. And so it it was just like this. And at that time, I was actually had been working for um, a wedding photographer in L.A., and so and she came. she also had come from like a photojournalism background so there was like all of this bit, little bits of stuff and it was just this I got this email from um the editors looking they needed a photographer but you know do t- you have a little bit more work so I kind of had like um some like where I did the second photography or like little bits of photo from like my wedding the wedding work and kind of used that to kind of like showcase just a little bit of extra stuff just to like show that documentary style. Right. And then um, I got the job. Um, they're like, Hey, this is great. Like, I think they want to go with you, by the way, this is for L'Oreal um, Paris <laughs> shooting on commercial <laughs> photo shoots. So that was like my first job. So my first day of work was i um, photographing behind the scenes um, with Gwen Stefani for like an entire week where she was like this sort of the secret new talent that they're going to showcase. And that was how that went. They they had said at the time, like, if you do well, it could lead to more work. So it was just...
1: Yeah, no pressure.
0: (laughs) I mean, I didn't (laughs) sleep the entire night, but like the entire time the night before. And like, I was, it was just like a fish out of water, complete fish out of the water. It was just like, first of all, I've never had an assignment before that. And then, you know, I show up at like Melk Studios of like this, you know, legendary Hollywood, like entertainment place. And everybody just seems to know exactly where to be. (laughs) <laughs> so I just try to look, look for like the person that looks important <laughs> and I go yeah. and introduce myself to the president, of <laughs> L'Oreal Paris, which was like completely like embarrassing. But yeah, that's how that went.
1: <laughs> and it would be obviously it went well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I was very lucky that I was working with a behind the scenes crew on that. So I was just kind of sort of like found some people that was were like not basically was just Kind of just fit right into that group of people that was doing the behind the scenes. And I just sort of like watched them how they did it and just followed suit and learn from there. It was an amazing experience.
1: Man, that's a, quite a way to jump into a pool. <laughs> I mean, seriously, because it's, it's not just about making the photographs. Everyone sort of fixates about making the photographs, but so much of it is about just negotiating the various people, right? Especially when you got executives there, it's like you got the crew there, you got the executives there, you have the the minders there, and you're there yeah. trying to take pictures. Yeah. And especially if you're green like that, it's just like there's so much <laughs> they have to think about, right? It's amazing yeah. that you you know that that you, you came out without freaking out too much, or at least freaking out and not showing it.
0: Well, you know what? It's just I I just didn't know enough of what I was getting myself into. So good I think point. That that was my saving grace probably ignorance um,
1: can be bliss <laughs> yeah
0: and I think it's just like I yeah and I think it was just like I had the team of people to kind of watch how they did things and mm-hmm. they were also just had like very similar like uh, attitude and vibe um that I just sort of like felt a place I was just able to fit right in so that was like made made it a bit of a soft landing for me and I think also just like being on set there people there they've like been on set for a really long time so they already have it's like there's like coded languages everywhere and mm-hmm. they tell you very quickly when you're out of line so you just learn very quickly when you're in that setting and when you're giving them up but I mean for the very long time I was still very like just you know deer in headlights just like oh no there's going Stefani she's looking at the camera turn around <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> were you able to leverage that almost immediately, or did it take some time to sort of build on that?
0: Yes, so I was able to. So I kind of worked worked on it. I for the first six months, I just never hadn't didn't have huge like entry into any editors or any understanding of how to even approach people. But from there, it was just like okay, well, I started because I you know, that was the only thing that was going on for me. It was just like I started looking for all the, like the clippings where things were being published at or how they were being used, and just kind of gathering them. And then I made after like six months, just made it like a whole sort of like little like PDF of the stuff that I had done. So one of the, um, the videographers I was working with on, on the L'Oreal stuff, um, his like one, well, I guess now ex-wife was the photo director for Hollywood Reporter. And so from there, I was able to kind of like bring that work over and show her um, what I was doing. And there was at that time a very direct need for what she was looking for. And so I was able to use that, show it to her, and then also because she had known that I was working with her ex-husband and like the whole team of people that was just she just already could it was like a built-in trust there.
1: Yeah. And and trust is at the heart of all that kind of work, you know. Once yeah. you've demonstrated that you're capable of photographer, it's the other thing is, are you someone that that I can work with and that I like?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: So your aunt played a role, a different role in another aspect of your career, but. A, when you had the chance, which led to your chance to go back to Taiwan as an adult. Yes. So yes. T- tell me about that.
0: Um, so I had graduated from UCLA. Um, my aunt knew about that. She was really happy about it, but she was like, okay. And she had actually been part of like the publishing industry um, in Taiwan. So she worked for um, a magazine. I think she was doing HR um, for what would, what would be like the counterpart to the Economist um, magazine. So it's called Tenshatsatsu and it's a Commonwealth magazine. They were working. There was like a. They were doing a special projects uh, series with um, one of like a like a cultural like a cultural critic in Taiwan. So it was just sort of like this thing where it's like, okay, maybe we can create a little like internship for you to come and just sort of like use what you learn from college and apply that here, and also just use this as an opportunity to kind of like get you to understand where your family comes from a little bit of history. So it's like which was like tremendous. I mean, so the par- apartment that um, we still have the family that I got to stay in was actually the apartment that my grand- my my dad grew up in. So wow. It's, yeah. So it was like really nice. So it was like in that way, it's just sort of kind of like in the same setting that he had grown up in and you go outside the same like, um, you know, little like Taiwanese breakfast stand is still there. So I. Like, would get breakfast there as well and then and i was just like using this opportunity to like do little bits of like street photography when i was there and then joining them on like the the cultural credit that like that they were doing the special projects around like it was about the anniversary of them um, of the communist revolution it's all the people who had fled from china into taiwan and it was like this anniversary book on it um, called 1949
1: that seems like a rich time both photographically and personally as you were sort of kind of rediscovering your family your roots but at the same time you're getting to see it through the eyes of being a photographer
2: yeah I mean
0: at that time I feel like I was still very just very young and very new to everything and just like I just also didn't really know how to be a photographer at that time Mm -hmm. you know it was just like what do I do how do I do this and then so it was a little bit, it was a bit of like a confusing moment for me and like as a photographer or attempting to become a photographer at that point. But it was definitely like a really great place that where I was just being able to kind of see the place where I like I was born in, but never had gone back to until that point. And then, and then it was just like a, like a chance where nobody else out there also knew me. So I kind of just gotta like, just try a bunch of things just to see what I can, who I was, what I can be. And mm-hmm. that was yeah, it was definitely like a, it was. It's always very mixed. Like I always feel like I have, like I do one thing, I come out with, with one thing, but I do like something complete opposite. So it's like really kind of always a bit hard for me to understand why these things come together. But <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah.
1: Well, I think there's an advantage to making a choice like that because especially when you're not you're not sure that making those extreme choices allows you to settle into a place. That is right for you, rather than trying to basically take a round peg and put it in a square hole. Yeah, I think which is why I think a lot of people struggle with finding that niche for themselves because they one they don't take the risk of experimenting. Yeah, and they're merely mirroring what other people are doing, which seems which is right for them, but not necessarily for the person who's trying to. Create something for themselves. So that's so. What you're describing, I think, is a healthy way of doing it. Even though you kind of go in blind at the beginning.
0: I mean, there is. It's it's funny because it's like it's like there's one part of me that's always that when I learned that there that you can be a photographer that that's a profession. I was like, all right, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. But mm-hmm. then there's the other part of me who was just like, well, like, how do I do that? Why how, why does this make sense to me? And then that's the sort of like part where I'm just trying to ex- like learn and experience it and. Kind of like find a way to just just marry these things to these two things in a way that feels authentic to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When, when did you start feeling that portraiture was uh, going to be a big part of what you wanted to do as a as a photographer?
0: I definitely think it kind of comes out of my my want to feel more of a collaborator versus an observer.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. So I come from a documentary background, journal, photojournalism background, but then they, but I think I always had these sort of like bits where it wasn't necessarily straight observation. Like they were, like I was trying to make sense of it. And then I also wanted to kind of like have like, not just be a fly on the wall and just ca- capture what was in front of me. It was like, well, I have, a, I have an opinion. I have an idea. Um, is there a way where we can both collaborate? And it it kind of, I use that in portraiture and in like the documentary or work as well, if that makes any sense.
1: No, no, it makes sense. When you started um, doing it for editorial work, talk about some of the early challenges, some of the things that you had to learn um, when photographing people on assignment, be they celebrities, politicians, people that were being profiled for, for, for articles. I know a lot of people want to ask about lighting and stuff, and I go, "Yeah, everybody can sort of can figure that out well enough." But the dynamics of working with a subject and working with an editor are, uh, yeah. are an important skill. And I'm wondering what, what, what for you was sort of a, what was it essential for you to learn in order for you to be able to do it effectively and earn a real living?
0: Yeah, I think it, I think just the whole editorial photography, game portraiture, it's a very psychological. It's, it's very psychological. We're managing a lot of like different influences coming around. You have the expectations to want, like you have the personal pressure to want to please the client. You have like what's going on in front of you, which is their action with the talent. And then you have just like a lot of the you have PR people around you kind of like with their agenda of what to do. So I think one of the, the main lessons that I had to come away with with that was to try to control the environment. What, mm. what was, what was going to happen to make it so that like the you learn to have to manage all the ingredients to make a successful shoe.
1: That's an important one for me. Yeah. Cause for me it's it's I feel like I have to establish that this is my house. Yeah. Right? That this is my house. And everyone here is here on my invitation and being confident enough to do that. Because once you surrender control of that to anyone else, yeah. be it the subject, be it the you know the manager, be it whoever it is. Yeah, that your ability to be able to do what you need to do is made all the more difficult, and it can be hard, especially when you're young. To, yeah, to give yourself permission to take that level of control. But I think to some degree, everyone is expecting you to, and even yeah. the people who give you pushback yeah. want to want to feel like you're in control.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it is that with portraiture sometimes that like you are taking a portrait of somebody else. And so then there is this thing about, well, if this is what's going to happen here and you want to feel like the person who's going to take the photograph is going to, they want to feel like, okay, this person has an idea and that whatever they're executing is that everybody's on board with what we're going to, what we're about to, what's about to happen. And I think that like, you know, sometimes like, they have like an image where like they want to have a show, somebody happy was well, like, well, then you start, ha- you then have to start like saying, well, like, sh- sure, I'm going to allow you to kind of give me your presentation and show me what you think you want to offer. But I also need to kind of take a step back here and just kind of show the sort of the humanity, the human side behind all of this that kind of like delivers what you're trying to do. And I think that, you know, sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not. And I think it's not always about like, Usher, like pushing somebody's like personality out for them. But it's just more like this sort of collaboration that's happening to kind of make something honest of the moment. And that's out of sight of like this PR push as well. Yeah. yeah.
1: To be the voice that introduces the episode like Alex Caseras did this week, just send us an audio file recorded on your phone tablet or computer saying something like, this is Tom Jode from Salisaw, Oklahoma, and this is The Candid Frame. Say it at least a couple of times so we have a take to choose from, and include three to four seconds of silence with your voice to help us clean up the audio. Also, make sure to include a link to your website, blog, or Instagram feed when you send it to info at
2: Help the Candid Frame to continue bringing you great conversations with some of the world's best photographers. You can do this by supporting our Patreon effort by committing as little as $5 or more a month. When you do this, you not only help us to meet the cost of production, but provide us the time and resources we need to bring you conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame thank you
1: is the pitching of the idea for you is it largely happening the day of the shoot or are you going back and forth with the people before they arrive at the studio in terms of of conveying what the concept is for for the shoot
0: it's, it's both. Sometimes it just sometimes it just depends on like what type of shoot is happening. Like sometimes it was a little bit more stylized, and there's a little bit more of like want to do something. There's a back and forth. Like there's a lot of stuff where it's like, okay, well, I see, I see this on him, and I think like there's something that I respond to here, and I think that we can kind of like show it in this light. What do you think? And, and then, speak, you know, they kind of all say yes at first, and then slowly, one by one, they kind of t- start tearing apart.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's just like, okay, well, it's like you know, you sort of like um, learn to just kind of manage that conversation to kind of figure out the best things where it's like give and take to kind of create the the best environment for the for for the photo shoot. But the other stuff, like, there's also times where, you know, you like it's we get the call then day before and you have to show up and it's like, you only have like 10, five to 10 minutes for the shoot. It's like, well, what do you so you only have like, sometimes just like this, this moment beforehand. It's like, all right, what are we, you kind of like have an idea of how you're going to approach it. Like just recently I photographed um, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, that was like a very, like we didn't have too much of an idea of what the interviewer story is going to be about. So it was just in my head, it's like, well, how do I even think about this? Mm-hmm. What do I do? And so, So I can have like a conceptually of just like of what I think I might want to get out of that, of that shoot of like, or what I think I can see about who he is, that sort of like, and then when I, and then so from there is just kind of like kind of getting an idea of what the, what the space we have, what does that look like? So that kind of like also dictates how I'm going to think about what's possible. Because if the room is very light and airy, then maybe the type of lights or the setting I bring up just kind of, just kind of completely sets a different mood and stuff. So this is just sort of like, yeah, I think you kind of like just really run as fast as you can when but, uh, sometimes with like the short amount of time and kind of have a conceptual background to kind of at least have something to fall back onto.
1: Did you have any sense about where you were going to photograph going in?
0: Well, I knew we were going to be at the Facebook headquarters and I had been there before, so I kind of knew what it looked like. But I didn't – and I knew we were going to have like a little bit of like a studio stage. I just didn't know what that looked like. Okay. But I – yeah. But I figured I think at that point it was just like, okay, I'm going to kind of go with something just a little bit like – because I think just has what has been going on with Facebook and every – over the last like several years. It's just – and just the fact that like we had actually done the photo shoot a year from – like the di- a year to the date from his court hearing Yeah. the year before. So it's just like, okay – We're not going to try to make this big, airy, like light photograph, given like what's going on with Facebook. We're going to try to like kind of have this fit with the times. And I think that that's sort of like a deeper lighting scenario is more
2: effective there.
1: And when I photograph someone, I often have the flexibility of being able to find the location that because of light and background, I can sort of move them to. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that you have faced situations where you don't have the flexibility or the option to be able to do that, that you're giving them not only a finite period of time, but a very limited space in which to create the photograph. Yeah. And, uh, so can you tell me about one of the more challenging situations you've been faced with and how you sort of came up with a solution for that?
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's just one. <laughs> there is um, this one time where i was um on a photo shoot for billboard magazine just recently and we were photographing um it was like they were holding an industry night so they kind of showcase some like fresher newer talents and they're doing a little performance for the members of soho house and so the soho house like you basically so it's like okay so it's like in that scenarios are like you know that it's going to be like a very quick scenario it's on the fly it's going to be like grab whatever you can. Maybe you only have five minutes with them before the show, something some yeah. like that. But to make things even, like, more challenging and more exciting is that, like, the Soho House is, like, you cannot have any photography at the place. So it's, it's basically because I was trying to, like, okay, we're going to do the Soho House. So I was, like, kind of doing a little bit of research just to kind of see what images are out there. And there's, like, just no images unless it's, like, put out by the Soho House. And so I show up, and we were talking to the um, – to, I guess I guess who's the talent manager or like the PR person it was just like yes but you know okay well we can't have any photography you can't do it like being they're gonna be performing so it's okay if you have your camera then but anything else we just can't make it look like you had taken any portraits so any of the, the stuff like you can't have it and it was just like but he said it in this like this happy tone that was just like really upbeat and I was just like you're slowly tolling, like tearing my soul apart right now, but for some reason, I feel fine. <laughs> and at the very end, he was just like, this is going to be awesome. And I was just like, is it? Is it really? <laughs> but, but I think it was just like in that sort of case, like you're just completely just limited with anything. And so, but you still have to produce something. So, right. it's like, what are you going to do? So it's just i I just have to you just kind of have to start finding a bunch of scenarios where it's like it's very discreet, nobody's gonna be around to see you, and you just sort of like strip any sense of like um details around so in that case, it was just like if I saw a light coming through a window and it was just shining the spotlight on, then I knew that okay, well, I can just darken everything in the background and just kind of focus on the face so it was a lot of it was just sort of like all right, these, all these photos are going to be super tight. Like, they are going to tight headshots, which is not a bad thing. I'm happy with that to do so, but it's just sort of you start, like, doing that. And then there's, like, other parts of it where it's, like, maybe there's, there's a tight, like, a slight, like, maybe 15 minutes where we had, like, a little bit of a green room in the place before it was going to be transformed to, like, to open to pretty. So we were able to use a little bit of that. Yeah, and I think it was just sort of getting really creative with, like, what we were managing, like at some point, there you know it was just like, oh, there's a photo booth that that's the only part of the Soho House that actually gets out into the public. So we're like, okay, we're taking over. So we're using it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, like, so like Soho Houses might not be like happy about saying this, so maybe hopefully they don't hear it. But yeah, it was just like we just sort of like took over and just like, kind of manned it. And
1: you got to make it happen.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You, 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 you know, the editor is not interested in excuses.
0: No no and it's like the worst thing is just like to see that like okay all of these restrictions happen and then i couldn't get it but then there's a photographer who goes the next day and does all this stuff it's like oh no it's, oh, it's like yeah. no it's like you something needs to come out of it and i think that was like a very big adrenaline rush and i was like thoroughly happy with what i was able to produce out of that um but it's not always successful it's and then it's just like when it's not successful, you just kind of go back and look at the photos and you just, like, figure out, like, wow, how am I going to make this work? How do I, I spin this?
1: <laughs> well, it seems like you've gotten good at it when, uh, during those moments.
0: <laughs> it's just, it's, it's like, over experience. It's just over time. We, like, it. there's more you deal with it. It's just, like, you just have to come up with something. And yeah, I think the pressure of, like, being able to come up with that, it's, like, you kind of meet it a little bit more. You're kind of up for the challenge just a little bit more, but you're also kind of get older and a little bit grumpier and like, just sort of like need like ask me for certain things to make things happen or otherwise because like if I can't do a good job, then I don't want to be out there.
1: <laughs> yeah, w- welcome to the one of the benefits of getting older. <laughs> so you kind of go back to your sort of documentary photojournalism roots with your project in in San Gabriel.
0: Yes, so I do.
1: How did that? come about and what inspired you to not move away from portraiture, but to have an alternative way to express your interest in photography?
0: Um, I mean, I would say that that was like always my original interest in photography, like the documentary um, stuff and, or the documentary style aspect and sort of being able to look at the world and try to understand what sort of events that kind of, or what sort of, um, yeah, events or environments that sort of like create how we understand our experience so that was always my interest in photography. But that whole entire project um, stemmed out of like a place when I was feeling really creatively frustrated editorially. So when I started um, shooting for L'Oreal and doing all these like behind the scenes, like documentary star backstage work, and then putting, then kind of applying that into then more of the editorial work, I hadn't really defined who I was as a photographer to myself. Like, I knew I had these interests. I knew, like, I had this background um, and interest in photojournalism. But then I found myself in a space that I had never intended myself for. And then, like, then feeling, like, being dictated. We're not dictated so much, but just sort of, like, being pulled in many different directions of trying to please clients or, like, kind of get these sort of images that I wasn't sure if I was responding to. So I had come reached a point where I was, like, feeling very, like, uh, frustrated and wanting to like kind of see something out of my work that felt like it was going to be for myself. So, so when I started going out shooting in Monterey Park, it was, it started out as like, just like me going out in the street and just practicing my aesthetic and just sort of practicing, like giving um, some worth and attention to things that was catching my eyes in the periphery. And then just like allowing myself to just be interested in that and to kind of create an image that I thought could be, that was like, that I always wanted to see out of my images, but never was able to achieve. So that was like a very, it was, it kind of it stemmed out of that. But there was this one day where um, I was stepping out of my um, apartment balcony, and then I had looked out into this scene of like, um, it was this man who was just having on a stepladder, like putting up like these, like, I guess like maybe these like like shades, you know, from right. the outside, like these bamboo shades. And it was just like, This landscape that was just like, for me, it was just it completely just suddenly clicked in my head that like where I was growing up in, like that it was the suburb, but it was like Asian people and doing these things that were like, like, I think growing up, like I had always like imagined that the narrative of the U.S. was at large and everything that was happening in Marnie Park or in the San Diego Valley was just uh, completely out of touch. And it was just, like, one moment where I, like, saw this scene that where like, those two things suddenly snapped together where it was, just, like, I saw our community as part of something larger and a, like, larger narrative. And it was just this, um, I mean, it was, just, it was such a, like, a classic, like, suburban scene where somebody's, like, you know, taking care of their home in front of their house. Like, these, like, very, very quintessential, like, symbols of the American dream. And it was just something that I was just, like, oh, okay, well, here's something that I just didn't know that I had never seen my neighborhood or observed it in that way. And that was like a very like, and that's sort of like where I'm always coming back to with the work, like what I'm always trying to chase after. It's like, how do we fit in with the larger narrative in the U.S.? Like, how do we belong?
1: What I really like about your work is that it opens up uh, a Los Angeles that was always on my periphery.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: but that I never really considered. And your images do that uh, for me. I grew up in Los Angeles all of my life. And when I take a look at your photographs, I see things that I go, that's a lie. Like in mm-hmm. some of your images, you have the, the strip malls yeah. uh, that pervade Los Angeles. But then you have the, the signage, yeah, Chinese script. You have the little decorations. You see these elements in which the people of that community make that aspect that is everywhere in Los Angeles, but you see that twist. Yes. How they're sort of making making it their own. And sometimes those elements are probably very subtle. Some some I pick up on, mm-hmm. but I'm mm-hmm. sure that there are others that for people in who grew up in that area, they see it and they go, I know that. Yeah. Um, was that part of the appeal of Exploring and making photographs, being able to to make photographs that weren't necessarily sort of heavy handed in, in, in terms of what they were trying to say, mm-hmm. but sort of creating its own visual interpretation yeah. of what life in the L.A., the L.A. experience is.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of that just kind of really kind of stems from exactly how I experience, how I've experienced growing up. Cause I, I draw a lot about that, which is like, everything feels like, yes, it's the same. It's like, there's nothing too much different, but then there's always that bit of twist. Like there's this image of, um, a woman who's standing in front of her house and she's wearing an Abercrombie with the Abercrombie bag, mm-hmm. which is like, it's, it's like this sort of this thing where it's like, you're kind of seen in a setting that feels very typical. It feels very like, Oh yeah, you. you probably walked by one of these places before. And but she's and you're seeing somebody who's wearing Abercrombie, which is like very like, you know, I'm obviously a quintessential American brand of like retail and fashion and such a... But it's like put together in a way that is like very non-American to me. Like the colors, it's like a pink top with yellow pants and a green jacket. And it's just, and even the way she's like holding herself and presenting herself, it's like a gesture that kind of like feels very... I mean, I don't, I mean, it just feels like very like uh, unique on its own. It's like its own thing. And it's like something that I think kind of shows more of these sort of mannerisms that's kind of shape how we experience.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a mashup of all the different cultures. Yeah. Like in one, in one photograph.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's the part where it's like, I never want to kind of be like, oh, this is like. This is who we are. This is how we want to be seen as our aspirations of as our, ma- like, like not that type of thing, but it's just sort of like mm-hmm. all these, how these sort of like mashups sort of line up and then disalign. Right. Yeah. And it's sort of like this feeling of constant, just sort of ev- like, it's always like evolving. I think there's like this feeling of evolving all the time. And you're like, you're taking on something and you're trying to go after something, but you kind of see where things don't quite connect but then kind of like form into like, but it almost feels like you're forming something new together. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the bit where it's like probably the reason why I don't want to make it so obvious, but there is always this feeling like feeling of familiarity and then it's like something throws you off kilter.
1: Yeah. And I think the, the fact that you're, it's coming from a very personal place
0: mm-hmm.
1: plays an important part in it.
0: Yeah. Like I, you know, when I was you know growing up and thinking about journalism, I had always thought I was going to like, go and become a conflict photographer and, you know, think about what's going on in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's just like, well, here I am photographing my home, which is like furthers away, the closest, furthers away of that idea. And the whole thing about that, I think is like this, well, before I go out and try to understand or try to say what's going on with something else, like where am I coming from? Who am I? Like, why do these things that like I pay attention to, like, what is it about that? that makes me who I am. Yeah. and I think that that's the question that I've always like probably been trying to answer. One of the things about like my family history and stuff, like the, you know, I think my um basic, I don't know my family's history past my grandparents. And even then, like there, it's just that one bit of history that I was able to tell you about my like, yeah. grandmother, you know, growing up, like having an education and being a journalist. Like that's probably one of like just a teeny tiny fragment of all I have of, uh, of a, past you know in my family like other otherwise like my grandmother was like 80 for like as long as I knew her (laughs) (laughs) she was always 80 80 years old (laughs) you know so I think there's always this feeling of like this not having a past and not really knowing where where things are coming from and I think there's a desire to want to like figure out well how do I plant my roots here
1: yeah no I get that yeah One of the things I admire about the work is you're photographing in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And as a street photographer, I know how difficult it is to photograph in the suburbs, especially in Los Angeles where everybody is in their car and virtually nobody walks on a sidewalk. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And I I look at the work and I, because I've I've driven through there, I've walked through there, and the neighborhoods like that. Yeah. And I find it one of the greatest greatest challenges as as a photographer, photographing in the public space, is in communities like that. Because if you go to Venice or you go to Hollywood or you go to Mm -hmm. downtown Los Angeles, you know, it's like shooting fish in a barrel sometimes. But you go into a suburb and it's just it's just difficult. So how do you sort of tell me about how you how you make that work for yourself?
0: Well, I mean, it was really, I mean, it was, it was really, really hard in the beginning. Like, I think that when I was starting it, it you know, it's just like you're in the suburbs and especially with even in a like Chinese, like, community or an Asian community that's, like, already very insular. Mm-hmm. It's like the act of, like, hey, can I, you know, snoop around and take your photo or something like that is just, like, it's, like, very, very, very suspicious. So in the beginning, like, it was, it was really hard. Every day I went out, I felt like everybody wanted to, like, was just going to bark at me and get mad mm-hmm. at me. And you let me or just be like, what are you doing this for? Like, <laughs> I remember this one time I was like, I found like this like long bowling club and was like, oh, I want to try to see what I can capture out of this. And then one other lady was just like, you know, don't you know that you have to like do all this stuff? It's too much work. And it was just like kind of diminishing like this whole, like, this is useless. Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then every like, so every 10 of those interactions, there was always going to be like one that was just like. Oh, they see the value in like capturing the story, and so it was like those moments were just like, okay, well, I guess here's one more. Let me let me move on and try to get the next one. Okay. So that's how how it kind of was in the beginning, and and yeah, and I think where you're in the streets in the suburbs, it's just like everybody's sort of like doing their own thing, I and mean, nobody's like you. So to suddenly just see somebody kind of like paying attention to you, you're just like, I did not ask for this. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it's it's like it's um it's a tricky balance to try to like um find a way to get them to pay attention to you in a way that's not antagonistic. And mm-hmm. I feel like when I was um younger and starting it, I was uh, less sure about what I was actually after. And but now that going back into it, I have a I think, you know, maybe it's because I feel like I'm going in with a bit of a more purpose, so it's easier for me to explain, it's easier to get people on board with me, like on board with me. And that I feel like has really changed a lot of the interactions with um, what I'm able to capture. And I think that, yeah, just having the sense of purpose and then feeling like the person who um, I'm photographing or doing something. I think the thing is like if people feel like they don't understand what your intentions are, it's it's completely it's like they're then it's yeah. like okay, well if you don't get it, then I'm really suspicious. Then because then I can't make out what, make up my mind.
1: So what's your elevator pitch when you meet somebody that you want to photograph and you tell and they ask you what what is it for?
0: Oh well, yes, I say I'm doing a project about a daily life in the San Gabriel Valley, and then I say that I'm trying to show how the community is settling its roots in the area. And most of the time there's like, oh, okay, that's cool. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that sounds great. Other times though, like there's also moments like that photo I guess I, I'm thinking about that image again with the woman in Abercrombie. But that was like a moment where it's just like, I turned around, I noticed, saw her. And it was just like a very like, sort of like quick engagement of like, okay, oh, take a photo. So it was like already there and a built-in understanding that I was like kind of doing something that was like, hmm, okay, we can understand what's happening. It's like a very, yeah. it's kind of unspoken, but it's I like, you. then you can take that photo, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
1: I read that you showed um, the work to an editor who didn't get it. I think it was in the uh, article that I read in the Aperture magazine. Oh, okay. And that it just kind of went over their heads. Do you remember that? Or.
0: I think it's sort of like the nuances of like why this image over another image and what these things are doing, what the sort of dynamics is trying to like, maybe very subtly, maybe it's it's too subtle sometimes, but trying to like to show why these dynamics are um, important to show. And
1: yeah yeah because I th- I think some people may just look at it within the trappings of it's it's yet another suburb mm-hmm. which if it's if if a person came from of a suburban upbringing mm-hmm. even if it isn't within a Chinese community they see those things and they immediately sort of write it off it's like this isn't special I see it all the time I live that yeah but you know you're bringing a slightly different skew and I guess it takes a little bit of education
2: yeah I think so.
1: in order I to, think, for them to I sort think, of pick up at, 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 like you say it's much more nuanced much more subtle what you're doing
0: i you know and i think that it really does demand you to sit down and pay attention and to really look at these little bits of pieces so it's like yeah it's definitely not going to be a quick instagram scroll that's for sure
2: um, yeah absolutely <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah definitely kind of like puts you in a place where you're going to have to see well like nothing's really happening but what is this like what is it that you're kind of showing here and why is there this feeling and so it really it's a very it's a very slow photograph
2: it's very yeah
1: scary. well yeah. i appreciate i appreciate slow. <laughs> <laughs> well my last question that i ask each guest is i ask them to recommend another photographer mm-hmm. for our listeners to discover and explore and it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered? So who would that one photographer be and why?
0: Somebody who I recently discovered maybe about a year ago, is a photographer. She's based in London and her name is Teresa Ng. And she um, just is recently is where she's putting out a book called China Dream. And I think it has been recognized as shortlisted for Aperture Portfolio Prize. And her work, she deals with um, sort of like identity fragment, like fractured identity. And she's mm. kind of like looking at China from the perspective of somebody who lived, grew up in a diaspora and what sort of like that means to her. And sort of like, kind of like just, I mean, she'd probably be better if she just said it, but,
2: <laughs> but just
0: sort of like, uh, to me, it's just sort of like kind of like the perception of China and sort of the things that are like what's actually happening, how you're, she's like figuring that out together. And I think that that's like something that's sort of like a, almost to me feels like a counterpart of a counter narrative to what I'm doing at home in sort of like the suburbs. It's like just sort of like how we're sort of settling this identity that's been sort of like displaced and then putting back together again.
1: Oh, I, I look forward to checking that out. Thank yeah.
0: you. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and thank you for making time for me. I really appreciate it.
0: No, thank you for having me on the show. I mean, I'm a big fan. So thank you very much.
1: thanks to Jessica for sharing her time and story with us. You can find out more about her and her work by visiting jessicachowphotography.com. My latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow is now available. Purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code Pirello40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on all things the candid frame. If you enjoy the show, help to spread the word by writing a review wherever you find and listen to podcasts. And if you write a review on a blog post, let me know and send me a link because I would really like to thank you on air. Thanks to Secular Pilgrim, Photo 2013, and and Dennis Bolt for their positive reviews. You can support this show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Stuart Westmore, Paul Martin Putura, Martin Branch, Casas Blachuras, and Giselle Duprez for their recent contributions. Thank you so much. And if you want to easily access every episode of the Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. And if you scroll down on the app, you'll find a free excerpt of my book that you can download. And we also have an Alexa app, so if you have one of those smart devices, download the skill and listen to the show that way. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin MacLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.